Good morning. Delighted to see all of you here this morning to worship the Lord in a very special way as we remember his death, his suffering, but even more importantly, his resurrection from the dead. I'd like to welcome all of our home folks, also welcome visitors, whole row of visitors in the back there. Some of Ernie's uh, family is here, so welcome. Glad to have you here with us this morning to worship. Before we begin, shall we pray? Father, we do all adore you and your son, Jesus Christ. We are humbled to be able to take part in the emblems of your death and suffering this morning. Lord, we are unworthy, but you are worthy. And for that, Lord, we give you praise, we give you glory. And our desire this morning is that as we worship you and as we remember what you did for us, Lord, I just pray that we could give you the glory you deserve and also, Lord, that we would give you fully of ourselves because you've bought us with a very special price. Please come into this building. Please be here with us. We invite your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is, this is Communion Sunday this morning, and a very uh, familiar passage that we often refer to or read out of is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Don't turn to it, but just listen. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. <clears throat> this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Paul says he received this instruction of the Lord. I don't know if this was what vision this was, Paul talks uh, several times about visions he had, and, but directly receiving it from the Lord. I don't know if the Lord told him about that night in the upper room or how he described it to him, but he says he received it of the Lord, and he's giving it to, to us, to those who he was writing the letter to. Two things to remember, his body and his blood. And as we remember this morning, I don't know if you ever noticed the little t the table we have up front here, beautiful table, and in front is the inscription, this do in remembrance of me. And when I think of remembrance, those of you that are married <clears throat> here this morning, you think back to your wedding day. You know, you, you remember that day. And I was thinking about the comparisons of, of how do we remember things. And there is a sense where we can reminisce sometimes about times past, you know, Older people like to talk about the good old days, and you can remember back to a time, and it's kind of this, this thing that happened back there, and it gives me good feelings. And when I celebrate an anniversary with my wife, there is a sense where we, we might think about our wedding day, but rarely is that the focus. Most times, the remembrance of that anniversary is, where are we at today? Where's our marriage at today? And it's just, it's good to be married, and we, we enjoy our relationship, and I think this morning as we remember communion, as we remember Christ's death, we're not simply reminiscing about the story in the Bible and looking back what he did back then, but we remember because of its current implications in our lives today. 
being part of, uh, entering into his, his death and his sufferings, but also remembering what he did for us and what that means for, for my life today. <clears throat> the word communion, as used in the passage here, by the way, I forgot to put it up here. I had it there. Uh, the word communion in this passage, actually, I'm not sure if it's in this passage here. Uh, it is used in the New Testament, though, but the word communion does come from the Greek word koinonia, which you've often heard of before. But the idea of, of fellowship, of partaking, of communion, it's a picture of the union of the saints together. So when we come together normally to worship, often after church, there's a lot of fellowship going on. There's connection. And communion is a, is a more special time when that fellowship goes to a deeper level. I think that's why we believe that it needs to happen here in the local body. But we are joining in this koinonia together and remembering together that what Christ has done, what Christ did on the cross in giving up of himself and the power of his resurrection, it's in that, that's what unites us. That's the bond that brings us together. So this morning, we are partaking in a koinonia together in a very special way as we partake. But I'd like to, I'd like to go back a bit in history and... I'd like to look back at where some of this came from in the Old Testament. We're all familiar, I think, with all the stories of the Old Testament. We're familiar with the Passover. But even before that, um, back in Genesis chapter 15, this is back when God made his covenant with Abraham. And as I was studying about the Passover and that, that night of the exodus out of Egypt, or when, when God came and he smote the firstborn of Egypt, I was looking at that, and then I was looking even previous to some of the promises to Abraham, and this was all prophesied way ahead of time. And we know that God made a promise to Abraham. He said, in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And he was going to give an inheritance to Abraham's seed, was going to be that, that promised land. But way back in Genesis 15, God tells Abram here, he says, then he said to Abraham, to Abram, no, certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And I found that very fascinating that and I didn't quite do the math, but if God is telling this to Abram, it was going to be Abram's grandson, Jacob, that would go to Egypt. And then in Exodus, it says they were there 430 years until the night God took them out. And then they go in the wilderness, and then they wander for another 40 years. And then they finally deal with the Amorites after that. So this is centuries ahead of time. God tells Abram that this is the promise to you. But there's going to be a long period of time when your descendants are going to be in a strange land. But I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to judge. He says, I'm going to judge um, the nation whom they serve, which turned out to be Egypt. I don't think Abram knew that. They're going to come out with great possessions, which that also happened. They came out very wealthy. But then he mentions this thing about the Amorites. And I find that very fascinating. So as God calls Abraham, gives him a promise, and we see the progression of Abraham's descendants multiplying, and then they go into Egypt, and then they really multiply. They go into bondage. And then God, when God brings them out, he's, God is preparing a people that are going to love him and follow him. And, and you see later in their history, 
they were very affected by being in Egypt. Uh, Joshua later calls them to, he says, are you going to serve the Lord? Or are you going to serve the gods that were on the other side of the flood back in Egypt? Or the gods of the Amorites? See the Amorites here? So centuries later, after they've been delivered, this whole thing of the Amorites and some of the Canaanites and that idolatry, it just had its tendrils that kind of wanted to follow along with them. But God knew this way ahead of time. And I, I, there are several stories I remembered. One of them was uh, just talking about the Amorites. And this is just kind of a bunny trail of history because it fascinates me. But later you see King Ahab. When King Ahab was, he was a very wicked king, Ahab and Jezebel. Um, one of the things that, that he was criticized for by Elijah was the fact that he was doing what the Amorites had done. His idolatry, this worship. It says in 1 Kings that there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So Abraham, way back here, God says that their iniquity is not yet complete. So in other words, centuries before, God knew the Amorites were going to get judged sometime, but they had not quite sinned enough yet, is how I take this. Their iniquity was not yet complete to the point of judgment. But then God does judge them through Israel. But then later again, you see that same, that same idolatry coming up in Ahab and affecting God's people. So this whole, this whole story of deliverance out of Exodus, as God delivers his people out of, Ex, or out of Egypt, we see today that that's a type. Egypt is like the bondage of sin. And God brings his people out of sin into freedom. But even as God's people come into freedom, you see that continual struggle of, are we going to follow the Lord? And that, that pull towards, towards that idolatry. Um, also, the story of Joshua. You remember the story of Joshua when he, calls, he tells the sun to stand still? He's fighting the five kings of the Amorites. And that's the point where God brings judgment on them. So the Amorites, they're kind of in this story, and the Canaanites as well. But God was going to judge them, but they were going to have an effect on Israel. So now, after the time of Moses, now you get to the time, I'm sorry, time of Abraham, now you get to Moses, and you know Moses' backstory, uh, growing up in Egypt, going out into the wilderness, now he's coming back, and God is bringing Moses to deliver his people. And when he brings him, or he speaks to him in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, this gives a little bit of clues to what's coming in in him delivering them. Exodus 4, 21, when God speaks to Moses about Israel's deliverance, he says, And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Tuck that away in your your minds. We'll come back to that. Israel, he says, say to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So before Moses even gets back and begins to um, get the people ready to come out of Egypt, God already has predicted what's going to happen. Tell him Israel is, his, is, his, is God's firstborn. If you don't let him go, your firstborn, your firstborn is going to be killed. And later on, we see that the significance of the firstborn. That's why I wanted to point that out to you is later God was going to have him uh, consecrate the firstborns. 
Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 12. I'd like to just use a little bit of this as, uh, as a text. It's, it's more of a story than anything, but it talks about God initiating the Passover right before the people leave. In Exodus chapter 12, let's begin reading in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning, shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh, then they, sh- then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord." Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at even. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. Now I'm going to stop there because Moses kind of repeats this same dialogue to the elders of Israel. I want to point something out here is this whole thing of the Passover is, first of all, it's something the entire congregation or the entire nation of Israel is doing together. Did you notice the timing? They're all to slay the lamb at the same time on the certain day. And yet every lamb was confined to one household, unless, of course, they had to share because of the size of family. So, the details that God gives here are, are pretty fascinating. But he says, all na- everyone do it together, 
but it has to be done inside. The slaying is outside, but the, the eating and the roasting of it needs to be inside the house. No one was supposed to leave. Another thing I find interesting is, as God, this, this bringing in of the Passover, it's a, it's a whole new experience for them. And he actually reorders their calendar. And I think their calendar was a, was, became a lunar calendar. But he says, this becomes your first month. The Passover will now become in your first month. And then he specified the days on which things should happen. He said, select your lamb on day 10. I'm not sure about the significance of the, of the four-day gap, but they were to, to select it on day 10, but slay it on the eve of the 14th. God made it very clear the details of how they were supposed to do this. The lamb that they selected was supposed to be perfect, without blemish. Um, how many of you have sheep? I know a few of you do. Raise your hands high. Don't be ashamed. We have some right now. I looked over there because that's where my sheep came from. <laughs> this, uh, this spring or this winter, we had some lambs. And yeah, I'm a terrible shepherd because a lot of them didn't survive, I guess. Um, I don't know what that means, if I'm a bad shepherd or what. But I didn't realize how fragile lambs are. I mean, I, I knew it because of how the Bible describes them, but they're, they are kind of hard to keep alive, I guess, if they're not healthy at birth. But anyway, I, as I, I've seen the lambs and just how tiny they are and, and, and just... They're, they're so cute, and um, I was half tempted to try to bring one this morning, but I didn't really have the nerve, because they have grown. But I was trying to think of the image, think of the, the, think of the emotional things that happened in this whole process. So on day 10, they get a lamb, and every family, of course, there was children, there was little children, and they all see this cute little lamb. Dad, what are we going to do with it? Well going to kill it. What? And imagine as they're starting to realize that this, this innocent little lamb is going to be killed. And so for four days, they have to see this lamb in their house or wherever they can find it, knowing that this thing is going to be killed and its blood is going to be spilled. And the innocence of that lamb, and think of, think, think of all those thoughts. Why? Why does it have to be this way? And one thing you see in this in this process of, of God bringing in the Passover and some of these other things, numerous times God says, when your children ask, tell them this. And I'm sure there was a lot of asking about the lamb for, for the next couple of days. But why? Why do we have to kill it? They were supposed to select a lamb in its first year. A male could be, a la- it could be from a sheep or a goat, but no blemish at all. Uh, The next couple of verses, verses 6 and 7, says they were all to slay the lamb right at dusk, which in the the Jewish um, calendar, or on their days, the the day would begin at evening. So the Sabbath day would begin at at sundown until the following sundown. So I believe this would have been right at the beginning of that that time. Right Right at sundown, they were to slay this lamb, and they were to catch the blood probably catch it in a, base, in a basin, and then they were to take the lamb into the house and roast it. Not boil it, but roast it over an open fire. And I, I wish I'd have a better visual here of this whole process of, of the blood. But we have some doors up here. You guys can kind of see we have doors on both sides. But just imagine, imagine that door to every house. And he says, take the blood and put it on the lintel and on the, the doorposts. And later on in the passage, it says they were to use hyssop, which we read about that elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, it was an herbal type of branch. 
It has significance for cleansing, for healing. So you have blood, which represents death, spilling of blood. But he says, take that, take that bunch of hyssop and use that to dip it in the blood. And then you go and you put it on the doorposts. And he said, when I see that, I'm going to pass over you. Now, one thing to remember as well is that all the firstborn in Egypt were going to die. And that includes the Hebrews as well. All right? So God did not simply turn away from the Hebrews and say, no, we're going to focus on the Egyptians because of all the bad, thing that, bad things they've done to you. The destroyer was going to come, but God, in his mercy, he did give a way out for those who would obey him. Now, if you were the firstborn, now in the passage in, in Exodus 12, I don't think it says the firstborn males, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is because you see that later on. But So I think it was the firstborn son. And whether you were an adult or whether you were a child, this wasn't just, just children. I think it was any firstborn was going to be subject to death. But imagine for, for now, let's say um, some, we have some boys here that are around 12 years old. Imagine 12-year-old son and, and the dad going out, and we're going to put the blood on the doorposts. And, and suddenly the, the, the son realizes that if the angel or the destroyer doesn't see enough blood, I'm going to die. Can you imagine how eager that firstborn was to do this right? I don't think they just, you know, dipped a little bit and, you know, just, I think, get that bunch in there, let's make this visible, right? I want that blood to be visible if that's what's going to keep me from being killed. And so they take that blood and they spread it on the doorposts and they, and they put it above the door using that, that branch. And then they go into the house and the command was, you may not leave the house until morning. Do not go out of the house. Very specific details here. Roast the lamb, and so they were to consume the entire lamb, eat all of it, and if you don't eat it all, burn what's left. Do not save leftovers. Burn what's left, and then they ate it along with their bitter herbs and with the unleavened bread. <clears throat> There's interesting symbolism there as well. I believe the bitter herbs um, was a very real reminder, probably in future generations, when when parents would tell their children about that time in Egypt, eat some of these herbs. Taste that? Taste how terrible that bitterness? That was, like, that was like our bondage back in Egypt. And for us today, it's looking back on that time of sin, that, that bitterness. It was just, it was a time in our lives that was, that was very distasteful. The unleavened bread was unleavened because of haste. They had to leave in haste. It talks about it later in the passage that when they actually did leave the next morning, uh, the women, they basically, they didn't have time to, you know, you didn't, they didn't have time to let their dough go through its process with leaven. And so they packed everything up, took their, all their equipment, and they headed out. So the leaven, in this case, had to do with having to be eaten in haste. But also later we see how leaven represented something even, even deeper than that. As they were eating this in haste, they were also supposed to be ready for departure. It says specifically they were supposed to have their had their belts tightened up, you know, get, get everything hitched up so you're ready to go, get your suspenders on, whatever it would be for you, and get your sandals on and have your rod and be ready to, to hit the door running. And so imagine this, this whole imagery of ready to go and quickly eating this meal, the last meal they're going to have in Egypt before they are delivered. Eat it in haste. Another detail of this evening is who was allowed to participate. Um, we do know in... in in the next part of the passage where they actually leave, that there was a mixed multitude, it says, that went with them. 
So there were those from Egypt who believed. And I'm wondering if some of them already had believed during the time of the plagues, maybe as the plagues were unfolding, maybe there were more that came to believe. So it seems reasonable to me that some of them also probably were able to escape uh, the death of the firstborn by observing the Passover. I don't know quite if they all made that decision the next day or if for some of them the decision was already made. But it was very clear that uh, later on when he says you're supposed to do this in succeeding generations, he says no foreigner is allowed in here unless the foreigner has been circumcised and has been brought into the congregation of Israel. So no strangers, no foreigners, unless they were able to come over and join God's people. As the destroyer came through the camp, and when he saw the blood, it says that he passed over them. And I can't quite imagine what this was like. It says that there was a a great cry in all of Egypt. Um, Now, the way we live today here in America, we're kind of scattered abroad a little bit more, especially here in rural America. But but imagine being in, in a city or a village, and, you know, the windows are open. We don't have insulated houses like we do today. And imagine as, as all of a sudden death starts happening on one end of the city and as the angel of death moves through. Can you imagine just the horror of that cry as death passes through the land of Egypt? It says there was a great cry that had never been heard before and, and probably never since. And so as Israel is being rescued, as God is preserving them, they are also aware that judgment is happening all around them. I'm sure they never forgot that night. The cry of Egypt, the, the safety of being within, within that house where the blood was on the doorposts, having their children around them, being prepared to go in haste and ready to head out uh, was a lesson that they never forgot. But God wanted this to be something that got passed on. And so he tells them that you're supposed to do this in future generations. This is supposed to keep going with this Passover. It was, it was meant to be a memorial. And right with this memorial was an additional, several other ceremonial things Uh, that he brought about. One of these was uh, in Exodus chapter 13. We didn't read that, but in the next passage, right at the beginning, it says, going back to the idea of the firstborn, he says, consecrate to me the firstborn. So all the firstborn in Egypt were put to death. All the firstborn of the Hebrews were saved if they followed God's instructions. But now he says, I want you to consecrate from here on, set apart the firstborn. The firstborn becomes special to me. And later we see Jesus being identified with the firstborn. <clears throat> Another thing that uh, he instituted here was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We read about that here a little bit in Exodus chapter 12. And so the Passover is at the beginning of this feast. So you have the Passover, but then for seven days they were to eat unleavened bread. So you can kind of imagine with the Exodus, as they, they have the Passover, and then they're, off they go, and they're, they're set free, and they start heading out into the wilderness you know, for the next number of days, I'm sure they ate unleavened bread just because they didn't have time to, to make other. But in future generations, he says, for seven days, do not, eat, do not eat leaven. In fact, you're supposed to get yeast and leaven out of your house for seven days, and this is a memorial to them. So think about that a little bit. As you compare this to the New Testament and what the Passover, what that sacrifice that, that Jesus became, and so coming out of bondage in Egypt being delivered through the blood of Jesus, but then not bringing in that leaven. I think there's something there where later in the New Testament it describes that leaven as being, as being sin. 
So as we, as we come in through, through our Passover, Jesus Christ, and we, we experience that, that cleansing, we experience that uh, regeneration, then that leaven is to be put away from us in the same way that it was for the children of Israel. And so all these lessons they're learning, you need to remember that as they're coming out of Egypt, I think they have, I think the plagues were for them too. God was teaching them who he was, and he was negating all the false gods of Egypt. So as, as Israel, as the Hebrews were in bondage for these 400 years, I don't know. I don't quite know what worship was like for them. I don't know if they worshiped God at all. Maybe some of them did. But clearly, the gods of, of Egypt were very present in their minds because they struggled with it later in the wilderness. They kept wanting to go back to them. But as God brings them out, um, he wants them to, to, put away, to, uh, to put away those gods, and so he has to teach them new things. So as they, as they saw the plagues, they realized, oh, these gods are false. And God had protected them, and then he brings them out. And so now this thing is a memorial for them for, uh, for generations to come. Now let's briefly look at in the New Testament here, what are some of the implications of the Passover as we are thinking this morning of, of communion and the Lord's Supper? How does that, how does that tie in? Because we can read all this as just as a historical event, but God is very intentional about the way he teaches his people. And so as you see that unfolding in the, New, in the Old Testament and how careful he was about the details and how... how um, concerned he was that he says when your children ask you questions tell them this is why and and use those things as teaching so you get into the new testament and the idea of a lamb being slain a lamb that was uh, from god a a passover lamb that was going to be perfect you first see john the baptist being the one who points that out in john uh, in john chapter 1 verse 29 you know john is baptizing there and one day jesus comes walking up and John points him out and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. I don't know if the whole Lamb of God concept had ever been said before. I'm not quite sure if, as people observed the Passover, did they understand that we're waiting for, like, the Lamb. We're waiting for that because it says um, this repeated thing of offerings. We know in the New Testament that that was never going to deal with sin. The blood of bulls and of goats was never going to take care of sin. So I don't know if people understood all that, but it says that when John sees him, he says, there's the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sin of the world. He's identifying that perfect Lamb that they all knew about through Passover, or they at least identified with the Lamb idea. Another thing we see in the New Testament is the Last Supper, Jesus observing the Passover with his disciples, coinciding in those final moments of his life on earth. And I didn't do all the research, but I I do believe that when Christ was actually crucified, it was at the time of the evening sacrifice when the Passover lamb would have been slain. So as Jesus observes that with his disciples, the old, the old Passover, but then he introduces the perfect lamb, which was himself. And that lamb was going to be the one that satisfied uh, the need for sacrifice for all time. Another concept we see in the New Testament is... Uh, Jesus being called the firstborn in Romans 8 talks about him being the firstborn among many brethren. You see that concept of firstborn coming out of Egypt. God says, set apart the firstborn. And now Jesus, after he has died, he's risen from the dead. God calls him, he's the firstborn among many brethren, which is us, those of us who are in him, those of us who know him as our, as our Lord and Master. 
Colossians also identifies him that way and says, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So God, remember back at Abraham, he says, Israel is my firstborn. I'm going to pull him out of Egypt. And now many years later, Jesus is identified as that firstborn, and we are his brethren, talks about here in the New Testament. A couple of practical things uh, or implications here yet. So we all know, we all believe here this morning that Christ was that. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He did take away the sin of the world. But what does that mean for us? In 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verses 19 and 20, a very familiar passage says, What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Because Christ was that Passover lamb that satisfied God's requirements, and since you and I believe by faith in him, he has bought us, according to this passage. We have been bought with a price, and that was that, that blood being poured out. Just like that visual of the lamb's blood being poured out and having to be spread, that blood that Jesus Christ poured out purchased us. And by the way, one other, thing, one other thing about the firstborn, when they consecrated the firstborn, they had to redeem him by, by spilling the blood of a lamb. So that part of that process was, was in consecrating the firstborn blood. They had to be bought. They always had to be bought. And so we have been bought. So because of him being our Passover this morning and us remembering what he did for us, the implication is he owns you. I think it's important when we present the gospel to others. I know sometimes the gospel today gets presented in a way where, you know, it's, it's your ticket to heaven. But it's more than that. When we accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, ownership is, he, he takes on ownership of us. So what does that mean? What does that mean if I'm owned by Christ? Everything I do, my life needs to revolve around his purposes and not my own anymore. Romans 12 says that we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And that's because he owns us. The second thing here, because Christ is our Passover lamb, we must live our lives in purity and holy living. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. And this is in the context, if you read through 1 Corinthians, um, it's kind of a brutal letter because Paul is writing to a church that has a lot of problems. And they've got their issues. And the issue that he's, he just got done addressing here was there was a, an immoral relationship between a man and his father's wife, something like that. And Paul says, you're puffed up, you're proud. You you've basically have done nothing about this. And Paul kind of says what his judgment would be on. And then he says this right after that. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So Paul is tying their old understanding of the Passover, that, that feast of unleavened bread, that you've got to get rid of the leaven, which is sin. And he's saying, Christ was your Passover. You have to get rid of leaven. If you don't get rid of sin, it's causing problems, and that's what they were experiencing here. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the idea is, 
our lives today, since Christ was our Passover lamb, since he was the one who was perfect, then we need to be concerned about whether or not there's sin or there's leaven in our lives today. Third thing he teaches us here. The Passover teaches us the important role of Christian ordinances in the Christian's experience. And by that, I was, I was thinking about the, the specific ways, we already talked about that, the specific instructions God gave, the ceremonial things to remember. And he said, do these things, remember them, teach them to your children. And some of the things that we do today, like this morning, for example, communion. What are these, it, it is symbolism, but this bread and this juice that we're going to partake in, what do the symbols mean? The feet washing, why do we do that? Marriage, what does that mean? And all the different ordinances, there's, it's important that we see those, um, just the way that they were called to observe the Passover and connect the meaning to the practice, it's important for us today as well to understand why do we do these things and be able to explain to those who see the sign being practiced um, and, and what that means to us in our, in our faith today. <clears throat> Tangible, visible signs of spiritual meaning. And then the last one I want to mention here yet is the Passover of our Lord is a pattern for Christians regarding suffering. Um, I've heard it as I was studying for this and, and doing some research. And, you know, for many people, especially those who are not Christians, when they read and they hear these stories about God just killing off all the firstborn in Egypt, you know, the comment comes up, well, how can God be, how can God be a good God? I mean, what a terrible God to go and just arbitrarily kill people like that. But think about all that happened back then, and there had been 400 years of suffering. So there was judgment happening. God is very just. God is very patient, like we saw with the Amorites. Sometimes he waits for a long time. But God's judgment and his justice are always played out. However, just because we are God's people does not make us exempt from suffering. God clearly brought Israel out, but there were times they had, they had to face things later on. But even for Christians today, Paul makes it very clear um, that suffering is going to be part of our experience. Actually, it's Peter. He talks about it in 1 Peter, that the suffering of Jesus, the suffering of our Lord, that's the pattern. Don't be surprised when you suffer, but make sure if you do suffer that it's for his sake and not because of your own, your own faults or sin. So what Jesus experienced... His suffering on the cross, that is part of the pattern for us, is our Passover lamb had to suffer, and he also calls us to enter into that suffering as well. So we are not exempt from suffering just because that we are his people, just because we are Christians. But that is part of the pattern in the New Testament. Jesus had to suffer even for those back in Egypt um, ultimately, the lambs, that were, the blood that was spilled back in Egypt on that Passover night, that ultimately didn't take care of the sin. It was obedience. It was, a, it was based on a promise. But ultimately, Jesus had to come to take care of sins all the way back to the beginning of the world. So the, the, the spilling of the lamb's blood was simply for them to understand. It was a remembrance of past sins. So let's not forget that, that we need that for us today. <clears throat> I'd like to close with Hebrews chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over there yet. Hebrews chapter 10. Just a couple things here yet that talk about here what Jesus Christ has done. <clears throat> I 
And as you think about the Passover of the Old Testament and the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, and you see those two parallels. One, all of it is done in obedience, but yet the old Passover of the Old Testament was not, it was never going to be sufficient. That was never going to deal with the sin problem. And he talks about, uh, about that here in Hebrews chapter 10. He says in verse 1, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. I already quoted that to you earlier. It was not possible. They were told to do it, but that was an annual remembrance that you sinned. The lamb has to be, has to be slain. You sinned. The lamb, and, and every year, and, and in a way, you think about it, every year when this came around, ah, the heaviness of that guilt. Another lamb has to be slain because I sinned again. And God, save us. We need something better than this. He says the blood of bulls and goats could not do it. Then jump down to verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. By one offering, he took care of that once and for all. And so we go from a continual reminder every year. The blood has to be spilled. The blood has to be spilled. I sinned. I sinned. And now he says, once for all, Jesus Christ comes. The offering is enough. And he says, there is no more. There is no more remembrance of sin. There is no lingering uh, bondage to that guilt. Truly, we've been set free from that bondage. Like, like Israel, like Egypt, we've been set free from sin. And so this morning, as we are going to be taking part in remembering this, Be assured that this one sacrifice that Jesus made for us, it was sufficient. He took care of our sins, and you and I can experience freedom in Christ. Shall we pray? Thank you, Father, that once for all, the sacrifice that you gave on on Calvary was enough. The blood that was spilled for, for the atonement, Lord, we are so grateful. Your broken body, Lord, was that sacrifice that was needed to satisfy all the many thousands of sacrifices of the past. And Lord, this morning... Uh, We look back on this event. You told us to remember this event. We look back on it 2,000 years ago. And Lord, we remember it with gratefulness, with thankful hearts, with joy. And Lord, we just desire that we'd be willing to enter into that. You call us also, Lord, to be willing to suffer with you. And I just pray, Lord, that our lives would be uh, completely um, dedicated fully to you. Lord, that we would join you like firstborn brethren, like it talks about in the New Testament. And so, Lord, this morning, as we, as we go into partaking of these symbols, I just pray, Lord, that the meaning of them would be so rich in our hearts and our minds. Meet us here in the next uh, minutes, Lord, as we do this together. And I pray that through it all, we might remember you. Lord, we might glorify you. 
and we want the rest of this time to honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Vance, and 